You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. Last time I spoke with portfolio manager Jennifer Stevenson on this podcast back in October of 2021, we were emerging out of the pandemic being our singular daily focus. Our attention now focused squarely on what the recovery of the global community would look like. Fast forward to today, and recovery likely sounds to many of you as overly optimistic. We all know the topics leading the headlines. Highest inflation in 40 years, rising rates, hawkish central banking policies, geopolitical turmoil, the list could go on. With respect to inflation, recent economic data indicates that a case could be made that inflation is not going away anytime soon. And for relevance to today's conversation, the correlation between energy prices and inflation is indisputable. The sustained rising rate environment could in theory prop up oil prices for the foreseeable future and energy stocks and other commodity sensitive sectors could potentially lead the market for an extended period just as big tech did for the past decade. On one hand, as long as oil prices remain relatively high, from an investor perspective that bodes well for the performance of major oil producers, drillers and other companies with exposure to the sector. But on the other hand, and I'm sure to most of our listeners, this environment, or the real economy, is tangibly felt by all of us as consumers. Higher energy prices have a knock-on effect throughout the economy. It pushes up prices for other goods and it rattles consumer sentiment and can absolutely have multiple effects on inflation, both directly and indirectly. So I'm glad to have Jennifer Stevenson back with us today to unpack a whole host of these issues and discuss the opportunities in the energy sector at the investment level. Jennifer's based in the heart of the Canadian energy industry in Calgary, which makes her close to the companies she covers and is regularly on the ground in other major global energy hubs. Her extensive energy industry experience spans nearly three decades and always brings the energy discussion into real and understandable terms. Jen, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be back with you, Mark. So we know things went a direction we weren't expecting in Europe with the conflict in Ukraine. But, you know, before that, we were already talking about high oil and natural gas prices. But this has obviously upended the global energy market. Can we get you to take us just a level deeper than the headlines and talk about how this is affecting overall the supply dynamics? There's a lot behind the headlines, and I think it's important to just put into perspective how we got to where we were before the Ukrainian invasion, and then we can talk about how we're going through that. So if we think about where we were before that, demand for energy was rising because we were recovering from the pandemic. We were drawing down inventories of natural gas and oil and refined products, not so much jet fuel because we weren't flying around as much, but driving for gasoline, diesel to move product around and run industry. And through this period and even leading into it, the energy industry was underinvesting in supply. So you you put demand rising, supply not rising, shown by drawing down inventories. So when we talked last time, prices were were firming up. And then there's the war in Ukraine. And we we had for a period of time a real fear premium in the price of oil because of how much and how quickly Russian 
oil supply and Russian gas supply would be curtailed. So the actual Russian supply curtailment has been a bit less than the worst case scenario than it could be, but we're we're not through that yet. So we've got self-sanctioning companies and countries saying we're not taking Russian oil, we're not participating in Russian gas. That's that's about a million barrels a day of supply of oil that's off the market. So that's the biggest change in supply dynamics right now. And we need to still keep that in mind when we look forward because there's oil still flowing out of Russia. And a lot of that is because it's under contract. So the companies or the countries that have contracts are still under that jurisdiction. But as those contracts come up for renewal, then they can be terminated. So the risk is that we see continued reduction of the exports of oil from Russia. So so that will continue to change our supply dynamic from the Russian side. And then we are still looking at, we've had this structural underinvestment in oil supplies so that we don't have growth in oil supplies. OPEC continues to increase. Every month OPEC meets and every month they've been increasing supply by 400,000 barrels a day. That's the deal that they cut over a year ago. And yet, if we look at where they should be producing and where they are producing, they're actually under that level because they just don't have the ability to add it. So we've got low spare capacity. We don't have growth coming from the U.S. shale reservoirs. Inventories are low and the Russia situation is not easing. So the supply dynamics, this is a long answer to your your question, but there's so much going on. The supply dynamics continue to be tight. Would that become more complicated and you know, a bit of the recency effect here? Because I was reading today this legislation being proposed out of the U.S. around, you know, I guess what they're calling NOPEC. NOPEC, uh-huh. Is that going to complicate matters even worse if that goes through? Absolutely, yes. It makes me scratch my head, truly, because on one side of their mouth, the U.S. administration is ostensibly calling up Saudi Arabia and said, please produce as much as you can. And then on the other side of their mouth, they're saying, yeah, but we are going to impose legislation that makes it uh, something that's either sanctionable or punishable by lack of ability to access, say, U.S. capital markets or U.S. financial system if you operate as a cartel. That's what the NOPEC legislation would do. So you can't have it both ways. It's completely nuts. Let's get to what probably a lot of our listeners are thinking about and only thinking about, which is inflation, the topic of the moment. And you know, no, there's no question, the surge in gas prices has been a major contributor here. And I think a lot of people have learned the correlation between the two. Is there reprieve on the horizon? What are we looking at here? It's really important to think really broadly about inflation. I mean, we all feel it. It's not just when you go to the gas pump, but you go to the grocery store and it's not that fun. You go to Staples and it's not that fun because everything we're used to needing or buying, the prices have gone up. So when you think about what's causing that, it's not just 
high oil prices. The other thing that's tight that is causing prices to be high is refined products. And if you hear people like me talk about something called distillate, that's a part of the barrel and the refineries make distillate. And what distillate is, is things like diesel and jet fuel. And the, the diesel, that's what drives the economy. That's trucking, it's industry, it's all of that. So in addition to the, the supply dynamics on oil, and distillate comes from oil, but in addition to that, we entered the pandemic with low inventories of distillate. And we've been in an environment over the past few years where unprofitable refineries have been either closed or turned into refineries that make renewable diesel, which is a completely different price point, very high in demand, but a different price point. So in addition to the high feedstock or oil price, we've got tight supplies for diesel. And, and that is really driving the price of diesel. And that filters into so many different levels of the economy. I mean, everything in your kitchen, everything in your house gets touched by something to do with a petroleum product, whether it's logistics or a component, you know, your, your cornflakes, you've got to grow the crops, manufacture the product, haul the product. And that demand is very sticky. I mean, the economic term for it would be inelastic. It doesn't move that much with the price, but those prices will flow down to the consumer. So what's the reprieve? How do we ease this? I mean, some of the levers that have been pulled already would be adding more oil supply to the market. So we already talked about we're not drilling more. So that supply growth is really modest. OPEC keeps adding supply. They can't meet those numbers. So that's really modest. The U.S. and other members of the EIA, the group of oil producing and consuming nations globally, have released oil reserves from their strategic petroleum reserves. And the U.S. released a lot. And it's happening over time. It's about a million barrels a day for six months. And that takes the U.S. down to the minimum that they're allowed to hold in SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, under the EIA framework. So that's been done. And that's really the only reprieve on the horizon. And it's underway already now, and oil's still over 100 bucks. So the next reprieve will be coming from demand, which means prices need to be high enough for long enough that demand changes. And that's why people start to talk about recessions versus the way I look at it is it's more just cooling off because we've had this confluence of events that have made the, the energy market really tight for this period of time right now. That's interesting because I think, you know, for, I'm sure for a lot of people listening, they equate energy with, you know, filling up their cars and home heating bills. But, you know, you just said it, like higher food production costs. Uh, food is 
you need fertilizer, you need nitrogen fertilizer, and that's made from potash and natural gas, and that's now in short supply. So right. it's fair to say that those contributors are, people have to be thinking about this. There is no substitute in the petrochemical market for oil input. So anything that has to do with plastic of any sort, whether it's your saran wrap in your kitchen or you know, the tube you squeeze your toothpaste out of or the paint in your house, like the list is so long. And those feedstocks, those inputs, those petroleum products, those prices are higher. So the cost of those goods is higher. You are a professional investor. And so as a result of a lot of this, oil companies have been a standout area of the market in 2022 with these rise in prices. You were a big proponent of the fundamental backdrop heading into this year, and it's only become more favorable. What's your outlook then on the space as an investor? And, and what's your view of the stocks right now in terms of how they look? Expensive after this recent run or about where you expect? After this run and taking into consideration the supply demand fundamentals on oil, and, I, and we're not pricing in and the market's not pricing in a hundred bucks for oil into the stocks. The market's not even pricing in 80 bucks into the stocks. And if you want to buy oil in December, 2024, the futures contract is $82, but the stocks are pricing in somewhere 68, $70. So the stocks, in my view, given what we're seeing for the supply, demand, and price backdrop in oil are really attractively valued. And, and the other thing as an investor that we find attractive is that the companies have been so focused through the recovery on, first of all, making sure their balance sheets are robust, so the companies are all extremely healthy, and then secondly, focusing on shareholder returns. So these companies are buying back their stock and paying out dividends, either in the form of base dividends or variable dividends. And the reason they're variable is they just vary by how much free cash flow the company has. So it's tied to commodity prices. The payouts to shareholders are really, really attractive. So that combined with the valuation of the stock supported by the outlook on the supply demand fundamentals, we just find a lot of really attractive, high quality names to own. The discussion on energy independence is pretty pervasive. What does that look like? Or what does that really mean when we talk about energy independence with respect to North America and Europe? And what kind of investment opportunities would maybe be a result of that if it transpires? Yeah, energy independence definitely is a focus and security of supply is also a focus because in the case of Europe, they were not independent for energy. They never have been, but they had supply because they had supply on the gas side coming in from the North Sea, from Russia, oil, they have it coming in from the Middle East, from Russia. And then Russia becomes someone that you are unable and unwilling to deal with. And all of a sudden your security of supply is completely called into question. So that's turned the whole sector on its head for Europe. I mean, North America is in a much better situation because when you combine gas and oil for North America, North America has enough energy to supply itself. I mean, there's 
regional supply and demand and logistics issues like there is with, you know, any kind of product. But, you know, the U.S. will import Canadian gas on pipelines. U.S. gas is exported as LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, so it goes in a boat. And U.S. will export U.S. and Canadian gas through pipes to Mexico. So, so that moves around. But when you do the math, we produce enough natural gas and we produce enough oil in North America to, to feed our needs. But, but oil is fungible and it moves around the world, not just to meet demand, but also to make sure that it's used in the most economically beneficial way possible because oil is something that's produced in different qualities. There's more or less sulfur in it. There's, it's gooier or lighter. So it looks more like molasses or it looks more like maple syrup or it looks more like gasoline. And that's important because, for example, the U.S. refineries along the Gulf Coast are built to run what we call heavy oil. So think of oil that looks more like molasses than than gasoline. And when, they, when I say they're built to run that way, they make the best suite of products from that kind of oil. And that oil they get from Canada. They used to get some from Venezuela. They still get some from Mexico. They used to get some from Iran. And the U.S. produces lots of shale oil, but that's light oil. And that oil is actually more economic to run in a refinery in places like China. So the oil moves around the world, but the U.S., if, if everything's shut down tomorrow, would the U.S. and Canada have enough energy to meet demand? But we're making more efficient use of it by putting the best product into the best refinery. So the U.S. inventories are low versus demand. Global inventories are low versus demand. Production is not growing very much, and that's a situation that we're dealing with, and that's why prices are strong but we can at least move the oil around and get it to the best use situation. Natural gas is more of an issue. And in Europe, it's more of an issue because so much of their natural gas comes from Russia and comes on a pipeline. So even though you read in the paper that you know, U.S. politicians are jumping up and down saying, yeah, we'll send you more LNG. Well, that's really swell. But there's two problems with that. First of all, is the LNG, so liquefied natural gas facilities in the United States that are able to take natural gas that is a gas and cool it and condense it into a liquid and put it on a ship and send it around the world. Those facilities are running flat out, as you would expect, because prices of natural gas in the United States are multiples lower than prices of natural gas in Europe. So you can make a lot of money, even though it costs money to liquefy and transport, you can make a lot of money doing that. But those facilities are running flat out. And there's, and there's facilities that are being built that are coming online, including one on the west coast of Canada, but they're coming online in 2024, 2025, 2026. So that's going to take some time. And similarly... Because Europe is, is more set up to receive their gas in a pipeline, they don't have the facilities to receive the liquefied gas. So we need to build regasification facilities to, to warm the gas back up so it turns from a liquid back into a gas, and then we can put it in the, the pipelines and get it to homes and businesses. So all of that takes money and takes 
time. So Europe is in a much more difficult position and they are buying as much liquefied natural gas as they can process and use. And that means that other areas that were buying that liquefied natural gas aren't. So Europe has to compete on price, which is why the gas prices in Europe are so much higher than anywhere else in the world, especially in places like North America, where we have enough production domestically that we're able to export. So there's certainly lots of investment opportunities, not just in the growth in demand and transport for hydrocarbons, including lots of natural gas and and the liquefaction of that natural gas, but also for Europe, investment in renewables, because Europe is in an energy crisis even now, and, and they're looking at just making sure that they expand all forms of energy generation to meet their demand in the face of Russia not being something that's available to them in the future period. You know, one question I get quite a bit is, does the retail consumer have much impact on demand? And does that have any concern from your perspective as an investor? And I, and I say that, and I, and I don't mean to be uh, uh, use humor for this, but I was literally reading a survey from the Tire and Rubber Association of Canada. Yes, that's an actual entity uh, <laughs> who did a survey that said 66% of Canadians they surveyed are going to you know, limit or cancel trips and travel as a result of prices. And that number climbs uh, even higher in certain age demographics. Like, does that really impact your thinking or the overall demand picture? What we find in normal times with demand and prices of petroleum products is the price has to be so high for so long that then it causes a change in behavior. So, and I say in normal times that the post-pandemic, I think is a bit of a different mindset because I do think that gasoline prices in Canada are expensive compared to what we're used to. And yet are enough families going to cancel their summer holidays now that they can actually go take one or will they make sacrifices in other areas? I mean, not to use humor in a bad situation again, but it's the people were poking fun at the Japanese government came out the other day and said, okay, consumers, can you please turn off the heating element on your toilets? Because Japan have wonderful toilet facilities, right? And, and they're heated seats and people go, oh, well that won't do anything, but at least it's something, right? I mean, we, we, we could all be turning down our thermostats. We could be making a choice to not drive somewhere and and that sort of thing. So the prices have to be high enough for long enough for it to affect behavior. And it's pretty sticky, that demand, because it impacts so many things. And I think it's going to be more sticky because we're still coming out of the pandemic and there's pent up demand to fly and drive places. I don't know if I have a natural segue here to move from heated toilets to renewables. However, I'm going to go there anyways, which is, uh, you know, another accelerant that has come out of the pandemic and through what we're, you know, going through now, further acceleration. They're becoming an interesting part of the overall energy story. You've talked about the massive runway for growth and a focus area for government policy. We all know about Biden's infrastructure bill and how much that was going to be a part of it. 
Which areas of renewable energy, though, stand to benefit the most as the urgency for energy independence, you know, quickens in adoption? Yeah, the areas that are really exciting are wind and solar because it's already being used today. So we're not looking at new technology. The technology continues to change and improve and adapt, but we use wind and solar on a utility scale already. And there's developments in the the wind business where the wind turbines are being placed offshore. And the benefit of that is that people complain less because there's not wind turbines in their backyard. On the east coast of the United States, there's been big offshore wind leases. So companies have paid money to lease the seabed rights to install wind turbines. So those are happening. It's happening in Europe a lot. The North Sea is a spectacularly windy place. You can actually see the impact it has on Europe if they go through a period of a few weeks where the wind is less strong than normal because you see that generation from wind go down and they need to call on other sources. So there's lots of opportunities on the wind side. On the solar side, the big opportunity is on residential solar. It's being used in Europe and in the States. New developments, housing builders are putting the houses already with the solar panels, with the batteries in the house already. And the adoption rate of consumers, especially in in Europe again in the US, of putting solar panels on their roof and getting themselves to have energy security and energy independence from the grid by having solar panels on their roof, a battery in the garage so that they can use the solar fuel and charge up the battery so that they've got electricity when it's not sunny. The other thing too is, and you talked about this, you know, when you're thinking about renewable, people often compare that, you know, to the hydrocarbon side of the equation. And there seems to be a gap between the performance of hydrocarbon companies and renewable energy companies, in particular this year, with renewables having such great growth prospects, as you say, why are they lagging on the investment side to the hydrocarbon companies? That's key. The renewable companies had a big run when they were accelerated by the excitement when Biden was campaigning and got into office and the the Build Back Better bill. And the market treated them almost like technology stocks because they are such high growth. And then when, when you saw a sector rotation away from technology stocks, the renewable companies, a lot of them got caught up in that, which is unfair because they have a completely separate tailwind from the technology sector because wind turbine companies, hydrogen fuel cell companies, battery storage companies, residential solar companies are driven by this global need for more energy and for energy that will assist the world to meet a reduction in in carbon goals and help us with the climate. So they're starting to segregate themselves now from technology, not every day, but most of the time. So we're looking at the outlook for these companies now and, and thinking that the valuation is certainly attractive 
and really like what these companies are doing because they were able to pass through their price increases. They have such huge growth rates that they had pre-ordered components and pre-planned for the growth. So they're quite insulated from these logistical and labor and other challenges that uh, other industries are facing. So they're in a really good position right now. I'm sure a lot of people listening and, you know, we're inundated with the commercials now. I, there isn't a car manufacturer that isn't talking about going electric. And I know electric vehicles are what we call the EV spaces in an area that you've uh, been been a big investor in. But do you consider electric vehicles or EV, is that an energy play or something else from an investment perspective? I think energy, like electric vehicles are a growth area for sure. But we're not interested in buying the car manufacturers, but we are certainly interested in and invested in the companies that are making electrification of mobility happen. So either the companies that are making the batteries that you can install in your house to charge your EV, the companies that are setting up the EV charging stations down the road, whether it's at a gas station or at a grocery store or at a shopping mall or along the highway, because this is certainly an area of growth. I mean, there's, I think you'll see that the adoption rate of electric vehicles improve now that the car manufacturers are really rolling out the selection for the consumer. And the, the more those vehicles are not something that the consumer has to change their habits to own and and get used to driving, et cetera, I think the, the better the adoption rate will be. So so we're invested in in the what feeds into that car business as opposed to the car business itself because because that's a, a whole other world, the car manufacturing business. Jen, I wish we could keep going and we could. Uh, this has been so insightful. And, and like you said, there's a lot to unpack, but maybe one final question. And I'm going to tap into your, you know, decades of experience in the energy space. But if one of our listeners was to Google energy crisis, it, it's staggering that I think for a lot of us, we would think of the 1970s or, you know, maybe 1990, the Gulf War. But it's unbelievable what is considered to be an energy crisis over history and how many there have been or, or you know, impacts on the energy sector. What do you consider this to be right now? Is this a, we've seen this movie before or it's different this time? And, and what's your advice to someone who's you know, a little more rattled uh, about what we're going through right now? This is an energy crisis for, for some people. And I'm thinking of people in some parts of Europe that are are certainly at risk of shortages of whether it's natural gas or diesel at certain times of the year. I do think that governments are acutely aware of this and are doing everything they can to prevent that. But it's definitely a worry in certain parts of the world. The, the cessation of of what is a material exporter in the case of Russia is an impact. It's not as material as the Gulf War was or the um, Arab oil embargo was as far as a percentage of current production. But when inventories are low, supply growth is low, demand is strong, anything even at the margin, even a million barrels a day from Russia 
has an impact on price. So it's the, these prices are legitimate. I think, you know, the hundred dollars we're at, that to me is more fundamental. The $125 we were briefly at that had a, a level of fear mixed into it. So calling this an energy crisis from a hydrocarbon standpoint, I think in the near term, it's more of, of a crunch because the natural gas supplies in a couple of years will, will be able to get where they're needed because we will have finished building out the, the liquefaction projects in places like Gutter or, or Qatar, how some people pronounce it, and the U.S., and Canada, for example, and there's also, you know, Nigeria's got some big projects going on. So that will help. The oil production is going to stay tight, but it's not that it doesn't grow. It's just the companies are very prudent about use of capital and shareholder returns and making sure that they're not investing too much today in long-dated resource, given that we are in the midst of an energy transition over the next several decades so I think right now it's fair to say it's an energy crunch, but I don't see us reverting back to pricing like we saw in the good old days, say pre-pandemic, just because of where we are on supply, demand and inventories today and going forward. Chen, as always, great insights and uh, a lot for us to think about. Really appreciate you being here and look forward to you joining us at On The Money again soon. Thanks so much. And to all of our listeners today, thank you for joining us. You can find all of the editions of On The Money on both Apple and Spotify, as well as on our webpage at dynamic.ca in the Insights section, where you'll find more podcasts that are relevant to the environment we find ourselves in, plus a lot more. Thank you once again for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption or option changes or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.